0: Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Kathy Motlathana on
1: SAFM.
2: We continue the conversation on the talking point and we are going to, for this hour, be looking at the media and the war in uh, Ukraine. And I use that word media very, very broadly um, because we're going to be digging a little bit deeper into how it is that the narratives that are being formed, that we've uh, seen, read, heard about so far, how those have been developed and, you know, we really are in what is an information war uh, because different parties want the rest of the world to see things from their perspective. Everybody wants to be found, to be on the right side of history or even to be seen as having been justified in whatever action they may or may not be taking. So how do we as ordinary people really try and cut through what the the mud the muddying of the waters may be and uh help to make sense for ourselves uh what is going on so let me invite onto the program today professor everisto benera who is an associate professor of african politics in the department of political sciences at the university of south africa professor benera good morning to you
3: Good morning, Cathy,
2: and good morning to the listeners of SAFM. Avani Singh is an independent legal consultant and digital rights specialist. Avani, good morning.
4: Good morning, Cathy. Thanks for having me.
2: Zvinka Kachur is a fellow at the Center for Complex Systems in Transition at Stellenbosch University. Zvinka, good morning.
5: Good morning.
2: And Tandi Smith is the Head of Programs at Media Monitoring Africa. Tandi, good morning to you.
6: Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Well, let me thank you all for making time to be part of this conversation. Later on within this hour, we'll, of course, also be taking um, calls from our listeners who will be reflecting and I suppose also asking different questions of some of the perspectives that you as our guests are sharing in this program. Professor Benira, let me perhaps begin with you to give us your own perspective. And I'm going to ask all of you to keep it as brief as possible because we've got quite a bit to get through but of sharing your own perspective of what is currently shaping the narrative of this Russia-Ukraine war.
3: Thank you very much, Kathy, And once again, good morning to the listeners and to fellow panelists. Um, what is shaping the various perspectives in the Ukraine-Russia war? Is the various interests of those that are having those perspectives. But before we get to those perspectives, what is a war? A war is a situation characterized by the death of the truth. A war is a situation characterized by the death of perspectives and narratives. And a war is a situation characterized by the weaponization of everything, including the media. This is then forms a war front that is called. The, uh, the, war, the, the, the media fair. So the various perspectives are shaped by the various national interests of those that are holding those perspectives. And, and in formulating these perspectives, Cassie, what the perspective holder does is that they deliberately choose where they begin their narrative. So you find that there are so many points in history where one can begin the narrative of the russian ukrainian war one can begin this narrative in 1917 during the bolshevik revolution somebody can begin it in 1922 with the formation of the ussr which then incorporated the belligerent ukrainian and russian nations into one ussr Or you can begin this narrative in 1991 when the Minsk agreements were signed, Minsk 1 and Minsk 2. Or you can also begin in 1991, but at a different position, the dissolution of the USSR. Or one can begin this narrative in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. Or what is obtaining in the media today is that most of the narratives are beginning in 2022, when the Russian Duma voted to recognize the Ukrainian wantaway away regions of um, Donetsk and Luhansk, and then the perspective is framed from there onwards. If I get another opportunity to contribute, I want to frame my perspective from 1917, when Ukraine was created by the Bolshevik communist Russia. Let me pause there.
2: All right, uh, Professor Benira, thank you for that. Shvinga, let me come to you. What do you believe is shaping the narrative?
6: Uh, I think, um, obviously,
5: there is a complex international situation that uh, is impacting uh, how the narratives are uh, developing. And uh, we can uh, see how um, um, Russia is positioning this uh, conflict not in terms of uh, international law, but uh, specifically in confrontation with the US. And um, in a way, uh, the uh, diplomatic relationships were done, especially in 2021-2022, allowed Russia to do it, because it's not just uh, um, addressing uh, through media uh, the Americans' attack and uh, violation of international law, is to protect Russia, but it's also how uh, Russian diplomatic services would address to NATO or to EU countries, completely disregarding any diplomatic rules, but uh, directing it specifically at the United States. So uh, by doing that, uh, Russia shows that they don't, didn't plan to have any in-depth conversation or use diplomatic um, means to. Have this um, uh, dialogue. Also, uh, Russia has uh, um, different levels of how to shape this uh, narrative, and we can see that it's very effectively used when we are talking about uh, social media campaigns, but also using official to spread disinformation.
2: Mm. Avani, Svinga speaks about the use of social media and this is really part of your area of expertise what have you observed um, over the last couple of of months leading up to where we are today?
4: I think there's been quite a mixed um, and slightly convoluted response from the different companies across the board we've seen some companies trying to um, out their services from Russia, Russia banning some of the online platforms, um, and other organizations strongly encouraging or assisting uh, people in Russia to make use of, for example, VPNs to get around the restrictions. Um, I think part of what we're dealing with is quite um, strong narratives coming from both Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine, I think, has very well positioned itself, and rightly so, in mobilizing international sentiment in its favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've seen, for example, one of the responses from Facebook being that to amend their hate speech policy to allow Ukrainians mm-hmm. uh, to perpetrate acts of hate speech against Russian soldiers, but the reverse not being true. We've also seen that, unlike what was initially predicted, um, the level of cyber warfare has not reached what was anticipated, but we have, um, according to reports, seen that Russia has invested quite significantly in a strong disinformation campaign um, that that promotes the idea that Russia, that this is not a war, that this is a special operation, for example, of liberation. Um, and so I think the landscape is still very complicated, and we talk about credible journalism, which is what we typically, you know, want the media to ascribe to. It's a very landscape when we're dealing with social media platforms.
2: And, and I think, Avani, you know, it's broader than just um, credible journalism because the media that we're talking about here includes journalists, but it's certainly not completely made up of journalists.
4: That's absolutely right. And you know, Within um, the international law framework, the key uh, provision, I suppose, is Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which protects the right to freedom of expression. In the general comment um, on that particular right, the Human Rights Committee recognizes that journalism is an evolving concept and could include, for example, bloggers who are equally entitled to certain uh, protections. But we know that there are, for example, certain levels of, um, I suppose, credibility protection uh, around certain members of the media who subscribe to a set of ethical principles who have an ombud who may oversee their work as opposed to an individual who doesn't fall within the same category. And so while we cannot talk about the media as one homogenous block. The reality is that there are certain categories of individuals or organizations participating as members of the media, um, which creates this complexity as to how we distinguish between that information that can be trusted, um, as opposed to that um, which may be, um, you know, may, may perpetrate, for example, disinformation. We accept that um, bias is likely part of the media landscape there are
2: like, things to that that we need to be cautious about. Mm. Tandi, are there particular patterns that you have observed, especially as a, an organization that has an interest in what the media is reporting, how they're reporting, that you've observed around this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict?
6: So I think that, um, you know, we, we always see some interesting patterns around how conflict is, is represented in the media. And I think what's important to to remember or to, to sort of understand is that we will always see some level of bias um, in, in any reporting that you see. And this isn't just in isolation to the Russia Ukraine conflict. This is in um, you know relation to, to any type of of reporting, especially a contested issue that that has so much attention and, and in this case the attention of, attention of, of the world. So you know you, you are going to see narratives coming from various perspectives and you, you, I, I guess what what's important to um, try and sift through is is what is actually um, bias or, or sort of biased perspective or, or biased reporting and what is in fact disinformation, um, mis or disinformation. Um, so, so I think that there, there are a couple of issues here when we, when we think about, or well, when we look at the, the, reporting on, on the conflict. Um, so, so the one is to, to, to acknowledge that there is bias. Um, whatever your bias, whatever approach or, or position your bias <laughs> sort of comes from, um, it, it will be there, and, and it's, it's, it's important to, to be transparent about the bias. Um, what. I, I guess another point that I'd like to make about the, the sort of patterns in reporting, and, and this is probably more of a, a, a comment or a, a question um, to think about, is if if you do a, a sort of quick search online of um, Russia-Ukraine conflict, for instance, and you you, you have a look at the, the images that come up, one of the, the simple Google searches um, and images that you see, and you compare that, to a search term about any kind of conflict in, in Africa and the visuals that you get from, so, and this is, I mean, a a few mainstream um, sort of news, news reports, the pictures that you see are, are unbelievably different. Um, And, and that's just, I I guess a a broader, a a broader issue that we can, we can go into um, on a a topic for a different day, but the, the imagery and the the visualizations that you get of this particular conflict where, you know, visuals and, and images of um, mainly soldiers, of scenes of war, of, um, you know, um, quite powerful imagery and, and compared that to to an African... Um, or coverage of, of sort of an African conflict where it's, it's death and destruction and bodies and... Um, children as victims and you know it's very telling um, about Mm. the approach that media is taking to, to covering this kind of issue
2: and, and Tandy, I, I think it's an important part of the conversation we're having today because, again, it speaks to the perceptions and the the, the imagery, effectively, that is being built up in people's minds around this conflict and how people view. Let's and, and it it emphasizes what we've uh, we know seen before that oh, you know, we're not used to. Conflict like this, perhaps in Europe, it's in Africa where we see things like this.
6: Absolutely, it's sort of you know what we we seeing this kind of of violence and, and conflict in in a, a European sort of civil so called civilized um, nation, and and it's shock and it's you know it's how can that happen, and you know it's a completely different emotive response to to that of seeing. Um, you know, far worse um, imagery um, coming from from how the African continent gets covered, and and this is a topic of conversation that we we often try and unpack around how how these things get covered. But um, yeah, it's it definitely you know it, it's actually quite depressing to to see. Um, it just reinforces the idea that um, bodies on the African continent aren't. You know, don't necessarily get the same kind of treatment as bodies on the European, um, I mean mm. European nations.
2: I want us to unpack this question of bias because this is often something that we encounter a lot, especially as 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 journalists. That when people listen to the reporting, they of course, just as you've mentioned, Tandi, they see the pictures that are being used, etc. And people will associate what we are saying with credibility rightfully so and they said but no but you guys are biased how you're reporting on this conflict is not a fair reflection of what is happening professor benira i want to come back to you because you started off by saying that the war or any war is the death of truth
3: yes yes kathy when When two countries, when two entities, when two communities decide to go to war with each other, it basically means that everything else would have failed. So it is almost an oxymoron that one can talk about the law of the war when war is actually an indication that the law has failed. Or one can talk about media freedom when the war itself is the subtraction of all freedoms, including the right to life. So how then do we talk about media freedom uh, an ethical and unbiased um, media when there are two sides that are at war with each other? And international norms, global power dictates that. You either side with Russia or you side with Ukraine. You are not almost allowed to say, hang on, There is a third way here. How Mm. about I am not coerced into condemning Russia? How about if I am not coerced into supporting Ukraine? Because my position is that I want to be in the middle so that I remain accessible to both sides. This way, we privilege a paradigm of peace over a paradigm of war. But let me Professor uh,
2: P- P- Professor Banera, I'm going to uh, unfortunately I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to interrupt you, daily, But I'm going to uh, give you a chance to complete what you're saying because I think it's very important. We're going over to the news desk now for the 10:30 news headlines. We'll continue the conversation after this.
0: The talking point with Cathy Motasana weekdays 9 a.m. till midday.
2: We continue the conversation on the talking point today, and we're focusing specifically on the media and the conflict in Ukraine, but really trying to understand how the different narratives around this war conflict are being shaped. I'll take your calls on 001 714 2006. That's the number to dial uh, to be part of the conversation this morning uh, on the WhatsApp line 0614 104 107. Professor Benera, let me come back to you because you were talking about the issue of bias and effectively why it is almost impossible to not have um, reporting that is seemed to be biased because of the multiple sides, the multiple angles to the story.
3: Yes. Thank you. Thank you um, once again. So what is the media? Because we talk about this thing that is called the media and the media freedom. But what exactly do we mean by the media? There are two angles to the media. There is the, the media, the organization, and then the media, the journalist. So for me, the problem in the reporting of the Ukraine-Russia war is not at the level at the journalist, but it is at the level of the organization that has got organizational goals. Most of the media that are participating in this war are either privately owned or they are state-owned. Those that are privately owned, obviously, have got a profit motive, and obviously they support the narrative that is being pushed by their home countries. So you see uh, the cable news network, the British Broadcasting Corporation, um, France 24, all those media organizations, including Al Jazeera, they tend to have a certain narrative. Then on the other side, there are other media outlets like Sputnik, like Russia Today, that are funded by the Russian state that tend also to have a pro-Russian stance. There is therefore no one in the middle to offer something that can give the viewers and the listeners an opportunity to decide for themselves. How does this come about? This is as a result of the fact that journalism does not occur in a vacuum. Journalism occurs in an environment that is embedded with power dynamics. The media is accountable. But to who is the media accountable to? Either to the shareholders or to the state. By the way, the media is one of the five monopolies of capital. One of them is war, natural resources, Technology, finance, and then you add news so these are the five monopolies that give fuel to capitalism as the as the predominant ideology in the world mm. so, so let me quickly move on to the to what then happens when the media operates from such a background in such an environment. there is what is termed selectivity then there is selectivity within selectivity the Media is selective when covering conflict. Just count the number of CNN journalists that are in Ukraine and ask yourself, why did you not have such an equivalent number or even half of that number in Yemen or in Libya or in Syria? Virtually every corner of Ukraine has got a Western journalist. They make sure that we get the news of whatever is happening in ukraine every wreck that is moving in ukraine must be seen on television every dead body must be re-emphasized so there is selective coverage of the conflicts then there is also selective media outrage when atrocities happen to the black body it is taken as a norm that it is normal for black people to be killed. It is normal for black people to die. This is why some of the Western journalists were even on record saying, these are people with blue eyes. They look like us. They are civilized. This cannot happen in Europe. This is not Afghanistan or any other place in Africa. It means that in the mind of, in the mind of those journalists, There is an acceptable way of treating black people and there is an unacceptable way of treating white people. Never mind that. The refugees that are knocking on Poland's borders are running from the same enemy, are running from the same Russia. What explains the deployment of the Polish army on the border with Belarus? The erection of those fences when it was bitterly cold just to deny Syrian refugees entering into Poland. There is a Polish old woman who was on record saying, I would rather burn my old blankets than give them to Syrian refugees. Fast forward today, they are Ukrainian refugees. They are being welcomed with piano, with music, with soup kitchen, with billboards, with everything. All of a sudden, we are outraged. This is structural racism. Let me quickly move on to the use of terms and terminology. If you are a Russian businessman, you are an oligarchy. If you are a, an American businessman, you are a philanthropy or something else. So there is this selective deployment of terms by the media in order to push a certain narrative.
2: All right. Uh, Professor Benira, I'm, I'm I'm going to have to pause you there so that we go to a quick break, and then when we come back, I also want to get uh, reflections from our other guests on what has been said in this conversation so far. And I suppose the, I mean, should is it a case of resisting the temptation to take sides? And when you look at the conflict in terms of the human rights violations that have taken place, the sovereign violations of Ukraine. What what imperative is there then on individuals to actually say, no, but this is wrong? Uh, is it wrong to be saying that this is wrong? That's part of uh, what we'll continue with after this.
0: Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Thimo
1: Satana on S.A.F.M.
2: We continue with the conversation on the talking point. We're looking at the media and the war in Ukraine. Swinker, let me come to you and, you know, and give you a chance to just also reflect on what I was saying before, because when one l- listens to the different, you know, dissecting of the positioning of uh, this war within the media from Professor Benera uh, and talking about taking a middle line, of course, there's the question of you know, but in the face of what one truly believes is wrongdoing, can we stay silent and, and expect ourselves to be on the right side of history? And does taking a side necessarily mean that you are siding with those who may not necessarily uh, be on the right side of history?
5: Thanks. I think um, we need to start with uh, the fact that um, Ukraine and Russia has not decided to go into war. Russia has built up 200,000 military forces on the border of Ukraine, and unilaterally decided to move them into the territory of Ukraine. So there was no decision on the Ukrainian side that we want to have a war, right? Russia doesn't call this a war. They call it the military operation. They've bombed throughout the whole country and I think also this violence is used to replace the international law. So now the question is, do we actually take sides or do we choose between international law and violence as a means of achieving international goals? I also wanted to mention the scale of this conflict, because we are talking about 10.5 million of displaced people. Four million have left Ukraine. Six million people are displaced within Ukraine. Those who moved from the eastern part, where the bombings were very heavy, from uh, Chernyhivsou region on the northern part, because Russian military forces are moving through 3,000 kilometers border with uh, Russia and Belarus. So the scale of this conflict is simply massive. When we compare the number of journalists, we also need to understand the scale of this conflict. We are talking about almost 7,000 residential buildings that have been destroyed. So we just need to understand how much damage has been caused because Ukraine is defending itself against one of the strongest armies in the world. And they are only defending. So I think... You, need to, you shouldn't put that there are two sides, with an aggressor and the one who defends. And then
2: you can choose
5: if there are a middle line between the oppressor and
2: oppressed. So in your view, then, Svinka, are you saying that there are only two sides to this conflict or are you saying that there is a middle line?
5: I'm saying that there is a violence or there is international law. There is a mm. decision of uh, International Criminal Court of Justice that, saying that and this is a binding this, uh, decision, right? So anybody who is within the international law would have to uh, abide to this decision, saying that Russia should immediately withdraw its military forces from the territory of Ukraine. But Russia does not follow that. There, is, there, there are multiple international agreements on nuclear safety saying that you cannot bomb nuclear power stations. However, Russia doesn't abide to this international law. There is an international principle of uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity. Russia has already broken all those international agreements. So do we stand with international law or do we stand with the violence? And these are the two sides that anyone in this conflict is, Choosing. So it's not between Ukraine and Russia. It's between international law or
2: violence. All right. Finger, thanks for that. And, of course, again, that's yet another view through which the conflict can be viewed. Another perspective. Let me go to the phone lines. Mike in Newlands. Good morning.
0: Oh, hi. Good morning, Cathy. What an interesting debate. Uh, a couple of points quickly I'd like to pick up on. First of all, I want to point out to the professor that um, that, uh, Ukraine, or two countries did not decide to go to war. But Ukraine was attacked uh, by Russia. Uh, uh, Ukraine never, ever threatened Russia. It's a sovereign nation. It never pointed one rifle at Russia. And in fact, this is not a war, Professor. It's it's a so-called special operation. But the trouble is, I don't think you really want to believe that because you obviously clearly think, Professor, that uh, that, that there's a difference between white and black nations. Let me just remind you, Professor, it's actually more dangerous to live in South Africa Now, as a black person, than it is to be in Ukraine as a white person with a war going on. We kill 50 people a day in our country. Nobody cares about that, Professor. We shoot people at at Americana. There's never any justification, nor uh, uh, anybody goes to jail. We starve our patients to death in hospitals. We beat our uh, people up in the street. Our army beat to death. One person called Collins Cozier, amongst others. So we're a very violent country. So it's no surprise to me that we are not getting the kind of publicity that we expect overseas anymore, because unfortunately, that is what has become of South Africa and Africa in general. We are a lawless country, and we hang around, by the way, to, to company, uh, countries like Cuba. They lock up so many people, Professor, I bet you don't even know how many have been locked up in jail and they are thrown away the key. We hang around with countries like China who murder the um, Muslims up north. We, we, we hang around the Venezuela. Uh, but when we hang around the tin pot dictator country, countries, unfortunately, we tend to get written off in the world media. It's not about having uh, any. It's, it's what we do, unfortunately, that we just are uh, almost written off. And in terms of South Africa, you know, I just want to remind everybody how badly we have presented ourselves in this case. Well, on the day that this attack took place, the ANC general in full uniform with ANC MPs were sitting in the Russian embassy drinking champagne celebrating Russian Day. Today we sit here, I don't know how many children have died, is it 400, 40, 45 men, women, children, millions have been shifted, and we still to this day do not know why. And our media here in South Africa, which is the whole point of my call, Kathy, sorry it took so long to get this out, has not been reflecting it. Our media has almost been playing down this, and I've now been resorted going to, um, you know, overseas, I have to look everywhere else except to the SABC, because quite frankly, it's almost as if this contract is not happening, and no, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, sure, a couple of million have been displaced, but that's what they deserve. No, they don't deserve to be displaced, they need to have our support. But sadly, unfortunately, South Africa, and I believe our government, has made a concerted effort to make sure that the minimal publicity comes out to reflect the brutality of the Russians and the people that we sadly like to be in bed with. Thanks very right. much. Kevin.
2: Okay, Mike, thanks. Very well thought out there. George, in George Claire, good morning.
7: Good morning to you,
2: your guests, and the listeners. Um,
7: I, I, I came across an, um, a very blatant example of media manipulation on a group on which uh, there are a number of conspiracy theorists. Uh, There appeared uh, Vladimir Putin giving a speech to the army, I think it was, and there were subtitles. And the subtitles read that he was coming in to defeat the evil plans of the West uh, and uh, they're putting fire labs um, in the Ukraine and all that sort of thing. Well, fortunately, I have a friend who is Russian. In fact, his family live in Ossetia, which is nearby. And I went, uh, sent it to him and asked for a translation. And all Putin was saying was that the date in February of their invasion was the date of victory for Russia. And that was basically what it was about. Mm -hmm. So because... They assumed that the the average person didn't understand Russian. They manipulated that. And I've also heard a lot of talk of neo-Nazism, and these um, uh, ads were uh, displayed on Russian television to convince the Russians what they were fighting against. And I found it rather difficult to believe that Zelensky, who is Jewish, and had um, people, his relatives, uh, many of his relatives killed in the Holocaust, would be a neo-Nazi. And uh, the other point that I found rather telling is the fact that the um, returning students who are black and were interviewed, they were told... um, Telling of their experiences and each one there was one male and one female was asked what the Ukrainians were like and they spoke uh, very glowingly of the Ukrainians and said they were very warm and friendly people in fact it was a place they would go back to now we know that if there's uh, neo nazism around that uh, black people would be the first victims of this sort of thing the other thing is that um, the one uh, was stationed in a town near where the Russians were invading, and uh, one of their shells hit a pediatric hospital. Uh, fortunately, they have been evacuating everyone, but one mother and child was killed. Now, the story goes that this is done by the Ukrainians. In other words, they're bombarding their own citizens in order to make the Russians look bad. So yeah. um, short of uh, that, I don't really know what to believe, but I think there's an awful lot of propaganda that's been put on the Russian side. And mm-hmm. I fail to believe much that's going on from that side because um, to me, Putin is a um, blatant liar. He built up troops on the border with Ukraine and said it was only... A training exercise and then invaded. So uh, bear in mind he's ex KGB. And right. uh, that's all I have to say.
2: All right, Claire, thank you for that. And I think you've given some good examples of, uh, you know, just the manipulation, the misinformation that is often spread. Let me quickly take Bruce in Randburg. Bruce, you'll be our last caller on this issue. Good morning.
1: Yeah, m- morning, Cathy. Uh, great topic. Just two points quickly. Um, there's many things in life, in history, and in geopolitics that are about an absolute truth where there's not multiple narratives. So, for example, the apartheid system was crimes against humanity. There's a flawed system, it was in a moral system. There's no two narratives about that. 1994, we had our first democratic election. That is the absolute truth. There's not multiple narratives to, to that. Russia invaded a sovereign country called Ukraine, and there's not multiple narratives about that, or there shouldn't be. And then one of your guests was saying how the coverage is all about Western media houses. No, that, that is not true. Basically, every single country in the world has got embedded journalists in Ukraine, including Al Jazeera. And Al Jazeera is broadcast out of Qatar in the Middle East. It's not a Western media house. They are showing the same dead bodies in the streets. If you put Al Jazeera on now, the same bombings of Maripol, the same bombings of the hospitals, that CNN Sky and every other. International media houses are saying. The only people that are not showing that are the Russian media houses like RFT. So, this narrative is not a fabrication um, of the Western media. It is actually,
2: there is some truth to it. Thanks. All right. Okay, Bruce, thanks for that. Avanya, I want to come to you because, again, you know, part of what is being raised around what we see in mainstream media also comes up with what is being shared online, like the point that, that Claire was making.
4: Okay, I think just to step back on this, you know, something that I, I keep reflecting on is this idea that propaganda and the censorship of the media are tools that have been used, you know, throughout history um uh, during war times. And, for example, with World War I being the first time that the mass media had a role to play in it, we've seen, exa- you know, very similar playbooks being used just two things I wanted to comment on before I, I move on to looking at social media specifically. The so one is that I think I've, I'm perhaps a lot more or, or a lot less cynical about, you know, uh, traditional forms of media uh, than you know other people might be. For example, I think that Many media organizations do strive towards impartiality, um, either because they have a statutory mandate as part of you know, for public broadcasters or because of the principle, a journalistic principle to which they ascribe. And I think assuming that every media house is undoubtedly influenced by their commercial interests would be quite a cynical approach when um, so many strive very hard to have independent uh, editorial boards as well. I think the second thing that I just want to point out is this idea that there is only two sides to the story. I think we've got, you know, there are very clear facts and very clear sides that people may take, but there are nuances within this. So, for example, one of the more controversial points uh, that has arisen during this conflict is, one, the broader sanctions that has been issued on Russia, but specifically uh, for this conversation, the decision to uh, take a stance to not allow... Russia Today and Sputnik to continue broadcasting. Um, which I think, and that was taken by the Council of the European Union, um, and I think was particularly controversial because it's not clear whether they would have the power to take such a decision outside of independent regulators. Um, and then as the last thing I would say is that what we've seen with the censorship of the media um, is particularly in Russia, is deeply problematic. Um, And that diminishes the ability of us to get on the ground credible information uh, from media houses. We've seen throughout history, and I continue to remain optimistic, that credible journalism lies as one of the last bastions against authoritarian rule. And I, I, I think that while this is an incredibly invidious situation in which all media houses, journalists, bloggers, and so forth are facing, Mm. Um, there's an imperative uh, I think to continue to try and provide a narrative that is truthful credible um, and adhere to the principles of journalism
2: Alright, we're quickly running out of time for this conversation, we've got four minutes left, I'm going to try and squeeze in everybody uh, just to get some final thoughts, Tandy. Hello Tandy all right i'm not sure what's happened to tandy smith there it looks like we've lost her on the line professor benira
3: thanks very much kathy uh, let me take this opportunity to round to round up by way of responding to our callers mike in newlands indeed <coughs> it is um un, undisputable that it is russia that moved and uh, attacked ukraine but we are going further and asking why did russia move and invaded ukraine the perspective from Russia is that Ukraine is the aggressor because it had expressed its willingness to join NATO. That NATO is part of the aggressor because it grew its membership from 12 to 30 at the expense of Russia. That the continued growth of NATO eastward threatened Russia's security and existence. So this is the Russian perspective. Um, I'm just responding to Mike there. And also, Mike, there are good guys and bad guys. Venezuela, Cuba, China. But also, let's also call out the so-called good guys. The United States started 10 wars and invasions. There were 1 million children that were killed by Americans in Iraq, and the late Madeleine Albright was asked if she regretted this, and she said it was worth it. The United States killed people that were at a wedding in Afghanistan, and there was no outrage that we are seeing today. So all we are saying is that the media must be balanced, both in covering, in empathizing, and also in exposing wrongdoing to humanity. And then the caller from George, I could not get the name properly. Propaganda is being used on both sides. There is opposing propaganda and there is assembling propaganda. One student of mine said to me, Professor Benyara, what we are witnessing is the banning of the media in Russia and the manipulation of the media in the West. Remember the whole RT saga when us in South Africa here and part of the global South are no longer accessing RT because it was banned in Germany. And what happened was that... uh, Russia then banned the, the German outlet. So it was then a seesaw so of banning each other's media. Let me conclude by pointing the selectivity that I need to, to stick in our minds as my final point. When Meta, the company that controls Facebook said from now onwards it is allowed to use hate crime as long as it is directed at Putin and Russia. That is wrong. And these double standards are the ones that have made United Nations the United Nations Security Council dysfunctional today. Right. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Uh,
2: Tandi, let me come to you very briefly. Yes, sorry. Sorry about that earlier.
6: Um so I think my my final point, um, I want to support a lot of what Avni was saying, um, you know, about the role of media and, and, and journalists um, in in the context. And I think, you know, just to, to to add on to that, the the role of the media is undoubtedly absolutely critical in, in especially a time like this. And you know, as the consumer of news um, and an audience member, you you need to be aware of bias. Um, you know, don't take everything at, at face value, um, but you know, critique what what information you 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 are getting. But um, you know, the the role of journalists is we, we, we cannot do without. Um, and, and then also just to, to add on in terms of disinformation and, and propaganda, um, you know, I think disinformation in itself is, is a, a whole beast on its own. Um, and, you know, we, we do enjoy mechanisms that we have in place to deal with disinformation, like um, the Real 411. When you come across WhatsApp content, content on on WhatsApp, um, on the WhatsApp platform, and, and messages that you aren't sure about, submit the complaints to your four on one, and you know tackle there is something you can do about it. Um, and I think just in, in closing, um, you know, we we enjoy the amount of well, We we are at a time when we are able to enjoy the amount of information. It is isn't information overload. Um, But without the the role of the media, I think we would be in a very, very far, deeper, serious um, position than we, we find ourselves in now.
2: All right. Let me thank you all for coming onto the show today and for sharing your insights. I certainly hope it has helped build or <laughs> I don't know if it's made <laughs> the challenging of the narratives, if it's made the complexity of it easier or even more complicated for you, but we'll leave it there with this conversation for this morning. Uh, and Musa has your latest news.